Well, we're glad you're here. Welcome to the first Sunday of 2016. Um, it's an honor. It's an honor to have you here, especially if you are a guest with us. It really is. I'm always kind of blown away that people would want to uh, spend their Sundays with us. I mean, we started this little thing a few years ago, and it's just, it's been kind of remarkable to watch what God has done. And so as we enter into a new year, I'm I'm really overflowing with gratitude and thankfulness for the people, like all of you, that have been on this journey with us. It's, it's a really exciting time, and I think 2016 marks a really interesting and exciting time in the life of our church. We've, we've taken some risks, we've trusted the Lord, we've stepped out there, and not just into new space, but just with how we think about life and mission and the gospel, and, and I'm just excited about what God has for us. It's a really exciting time, I think, to be part of this community, at least, at least for me, um, and so we're glad you're here. Uh, you know, uh, New Year's resolutions and the beginning of a new year is a really interesting time. I don't know how many of you set New Year's resolutions. Uh, I was reading an article that says about 80% of Americans, some form or fashion, set some kind of New Year's resolution because the new year is really a perfect time to kind of start something new, right? Begin a new work or kind of start fresh. It marks a, a time where we can say, look, that old thing is is past, and I'm going to start something new with this year, and things are going to change. And, and so that article said about 80% of Americans will set some kind, one or more, of a New Year's resolutions. And the most common for 2016 are to live life to the fullest, whatever that means, which sounds really good. I'll get on board with that. Eat, be healthier, like be a healthier person. I think that covers a lot of things. And then the other one is lose weight. So the three things that Americans are committing to, 80% of us typically are committing to in 2016 are kind of living a, a happier, fuller lifestyle in which I'm healthier and I'm skinnier, right? Which, hey, I can get on board with all of those things, right? Like I, I'll just take those and adopt them and they'll be mine. Because a lot of us think that from a New Year's resolution standpoint, that if I change a particular piece of my life, it will have a profound impact on the whole, right? So it's really what a New Year's resolution is. If I decide and declare that I'm going to do this thing differently, then it's going to have a profound impact on how the whole of my life is. So if I lose weight, for example, I will feel better. If I live healthier, I'll be able to do more things. If I enjoy life more, I can get rid of that worry and anxiety. Or if I learn to play the trombone, then I'll be a more well-rounded person. If I read 20 books this year, then I'll, you know, I'll watch less TV and I'll be smarter, whatever. Like We think that when we set those things, that it's going to have a profound impact on the whole. And so that's why typically most of us do that. So as this article goes on, it goes on to say that uh, most New Year's resolutions, in fact, only 10% of them will actually happen. Uh, only 10% of us will actually bring one of those New Year's resolutions to completion, and most will fizzle out after like three weeks. So, and I started thinking, that's probably about right. I mean, right by about three weeks in, you're eating meatballs again or whatever. Like, you're just you're done. You're like, ah, I gave it a whirl in 2016. I'm off. And so, uh, but I started thinking about that. I go, if our life is just really, if my life, and really I just think about how this affects me, I, if my life is really boiled down to several things that I want to keep trying to make myself feel a little better, I'm missing a huge part of this Christian life because I think we apply this New Year's resolution concept to our spiritual lives, right? We think, God, so this is what I'm going to do in 2016. I'm going to read the Bible, or I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray more, or I'm going to go to church more than once a month, or I'm going to make these sort of commitments, hoping that by making a little bit of spiritual movement, it will affect the whole of who I am. But as I started really thinking about this, and I started thinking about how these things fail and we don't keep them and, and all that kind of stuff, I started thinking about who I really want to be. Not just 
who I want to be, but really who God is telling me I am and who Scripture tells me I am. And there's a, there's a little section in text, and actually Scripture has a lot of pictures of this, but there's a little section in the book of Colossians chapter 3, which we're going to look at this morning, which I think paints this incredible picture of what a Christ follower should look like. It, not only does it tell you who you are, who I am, but it tells us who we should be. And so as setting these kind of New Year's resolutions, I started thinking about what if I just tried to live into what the Word tells me I should be? Like as a follower of Christ, what if instead of saying, God, this year I'm going to learn to play the sousaphone and I'm going to get the recorder out or whatever, I mean, I'm going to try and live or at least live into who you say I am and who you tell me I am as a follower of Christ. What if that became our call, not just for our, the new year, but for our life? Um, because the words that we're going to see in Colossians are really profound. And so, not that there's anything wrong with New Year's resolutions, and I, I really do hope you learned a ballroom dance, promise. But what if we adjusted our thinking to say, God, how do I live into who you tell me I am and who you call me to be? If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to Colossians chapter 3. So the book of Colossians is a really interesting one because it's, uh, it's written to this really young brand new group of Christians. Now remember, a lot of the Bible books were written to new Christians because there was no generational Christianity, but the book of Colossians is really written to a real, fledgling, brand new group of baby Christians. And the town of Colossae was about, oh, a hundred miles away from Ephesus, and most people believe that, that the gospel uh, came to the town of Colossae when Paul was on his third missionary journey and spending this lengthy time in Ephesus. Now if you remember from about a month or so ago, We've been working through the book of Acts for a little bit over a year now, and about a month or so ago, we, we kind of saw Paul on his third missionary journey, and he spent a year and a half in Ephesus, and most people believe during that year and a half in Ephesus that the gospel made it to Colossae, about a, about a hundred miles away, but there was not a lot of leadership there, and so this group of believers was sort of in constant flux with heretical teaching, and they were dealing with a lot of issues, and so Paul writes this letter to this group of new believers Really what the letter is about is about saying, look, Jesus is supremely God and he is supremely in charge of all things. Because there was a lot of heretical teaching saying, hey, look, there are other things that are equally as important as Jesus. And there are a lot of things that should have a prominent place in your life. And so what Paul's letter mainly does, it says in chapter 1, it says actually Jesus is the most important. He is head of all things. He is God's son and he is supreme and he is holy. Now, this is how we're called to live in response to that. And the rest of the letter is a living response or a call to live differently because of what we know about the person of Jesus Christ. So it's basically saying to a young believer, this is what your life should be marked by as a follower of Jesus. And so it's natural when I began to think about what what is my life supposed to look like as a follower of Christ? Like, really, like I think we all have some sort of picture, but really in we really unpacked it and said, God, how do I live into what you've called me to as I think about a new year and a, a new opportunity or a new beginning or whatever? There's a picture in this chapter 3 of this book that was written for these young believers that I think is well, it's, it's very deep and it's very simple and it's very profound. So if you have your Bible, I want you to open to Colossians chapter 3. And we're just going to be in a few short verses. We're going to start in verse 12 and uh, probably only make it down to about 14. But it's a great picture. So let's take a moment, let's pray, and then we'll kind of chew through it together. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to gather here on the first Sunday of the new year. I thank you for, um, Lord, the opportunity to be made new in Christ. Lord, that in 
the perfect death and resurrection of your son, you have given all of us access to new life to the person of Jesus Christ, Lord, and we do not deserve that. Lord, uh, most of our years, in fact, I can speak for all of us when I say that our 2015 was marked with sin. It was marked with mistakes, shortcomings, failures. It was marked with disappointments, both on our behalf and from others. Um, Lord, it was marked with a lot of wonderful things too, but, but those are real hallmarks of our life because it's, it's in our nature. But God, through the person of Jesus Christ, you have freed us from that. You have given us new opportunity and new life and new beginning, and you have, you have washed away our sin. You tell us that you have turned our lives from scarlet to white. God, that you have forgiven, that you have set our sin as far as the east is from the west. Lord, that is what it means to live new in you. So this morning, while we step into a new year, we're marked with the same truth, which is we have new life in Christ. <clears throat> we are new creations, new beginnings, new opportunities, free from death and sin. So Lord, this morning as we look at this text and we examine what it would look like in our life to actually step into who you already tell us we are and how that should change how we live, Lord, I pray that you would convict our hearts. Convict our hearts that these new beginnings should lead to new attitudes, to new ways of life, new ways of living. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to teach you something this morning, however simple However, you know, whatever it is that the Lord just needs to teach you, just ask him to teach your heart, to make his word relevant to right where you are. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here. I'm grateful that we're sitting in a room full of people, people that matter to us. And as we sit here, Lord, we want to pray for each other. So take a moment right where you sit and just pray for somebody else. Each, each week we do this, we just ask you to be in the habit of praying for other people. Like pray for the person next to you that God would move in them. Make this morning not just about you. Lord, we ask you to teach our hearts. And we ask this in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. Really short section out of the book of Colossians, but a really important section. And as I mentioned, Paul's writing to this church basically saying, look, Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. He is the supreme authority. He is what holds all of creation together, and he changes everything. And he should change our attitudes and our hearts. He should change the way that we think and the way that we live. It should impact us. And he's basically saying, church, listen, listen. As a follower of Christ, to really believe these truths about Jesus and who he says you are should change everything about us, right? And not just those little external things that we want to change to make ourselves a little better, but the whole of who we are. And as I was reading this, I thought, you know what, and not just in 2016, but really starting this year, right, because this is just kind of how we start news, but this is what I want my life to look like. Like, this is what I would like to be known for, to understand who God tells me I am and how that changes everything. Let's look at these verses together. So verse 12, Paul says this. He says, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness and patience, bear with each other, and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. 
kind of a small piece of text taken right out of the middle of a section in which Paul is reminding everyone that Jesus changes everything and he should change the way that we think and the way that we live. And as I think about my life and what I want it to look like, not just in 2016, but and beyond, I call back to this letter because Paul's giving instructions to this church of new believers saying, look, Jesus should so change the way that you live, right? So it should change your heart that it's visible to the entire world. But before any of that happens, before any of the action or attitude happens, he says there's a few things that you have to understand about who you are. And I think this is really important because a lot of us want to get on board with changing things in us for the better, right? We want the New Year resolution kind of Christian life. We want to read more so that God will kind of teach us more. We want to act a little better so that God may bless us. Or we want to show up to church so that we feel a little bit better about ourselves. We want to do something and get something in return. But really, Scripture is not about that at all. Scripture is about understanding, or Jesus is about understanding who God says we are and beginning to live into that truth. And the first thing Paul does in this little section is he tells them three truths about who they are as followers of Christ. He wants you to say, listen, as new believers, as, as people that have surrendered your heart to Christ, there are three things that I want you to understand about your nature now that is completely and totally different. And I think there are three things that we have to understand as well. He says, first, you are God's chosen people. Now, if you've read the Old Testament at all, you will know that for centuries, actually thousands of years, Israel was God's chosen people. That through Abraham, God reached out, he chose Abraham, and through him, he planted an entire nation by which he would demonstrate his love for the world. And he used Israel as an opportunity to show the world how God's love changes everything. And they were his chosen people, and God lavished his love and grace on them, even in the midst of their, their kind of unrelenting and disobedient hearts, and their, their sort of living in the middle of mediocrity, and all their wanderings, and all their poor decisions, right? They were God's chosen people. And he led them, and he disciplined them, but they were his. And if you read the Old Testament at all, shouldn't be a foreign concept. But an amazing thing happened through the person of Jesus Christ. That through the perfect death and resurrection of Jesus, we have, as Gentiles, as non-Jewish people, have been grafted into God's covenant family. And what Paul's saying is, listen, he's saying, listen, as believers, through Jesus Christ, through relationship with him, through his death and resurrection, we have been grafted into God's covenant family, and we are part of God's chosen people through a work that he did. Now, what's important about this is to understand that that choosing was God's initiative and God's effort, right? God puts forth the initiative. God draws humanity to himself. We did not choose God, but God chose us. And the reason that's important is because in all of our sinful, disastrous way of life, all of our sinful living, we will never find our way to perfect, holy, mighty God. If you just read the Bible, you will understand that God in all of his perfect holiness and all of his amazing, mighty, awe-inspiring majesty and wonder, and us in all of our sinful, kind of messed up, broken lives, will never find our way to God. So what does God do? God takes the initiative with humanity, right? And he chose us. Now, a lot of us want to get into the theological side of, of choosing and all that kind of stuff, but what I want you to just hang on to right now, right, for this purpose is this. God took initiative and he chose you. He made the movement in your life. He made the movement in my life. And that's what Paul's saying to this group in Colossae. He's saying God took a movement and he draw, drew you to himself. 
that you are chosen. You are now part of God's covenant family by no work of your own. You didn't earn it. You didn't make effort for it. You didn't clean yourself up spiritually and go, God, look, I got into a new Bible reading plan this year, and I started going to the the ladies' Bible study, and and I got in a a life group, and and now I have earned a way that you will say, hey, Trev, great effort. I'm going to really, really love on you this year because of the effort you put forth. It's not how God works. God did what I couldn't do for myself, In the middle of my sin, in the middle of my brokenness, he reaches down to the person of Jesus Christ and saves me. It's the work and active movement of salvation. And he looks at this group of people and he says, I want you to understand this first. You're chosen, right? You didn't do anything to get here. And it's a really important truth because your spiritual effort didn't bring you into a relationship with the Lord. So Paul says, look, you're chosen. He also says that you have been Right, that you are holy. So he says, therefore, as God's chosen people, you are holy and dearly loved. So he says, you are holy. Now, I've talked about this before, but the word holy is uh, it's actually a, a completely different concept than we want to understand it today. Today, we want to understand holiness as some kind of pious perfection or moral kind of perfect life. Like if someone's holy, we think that, well, they're perfect or they're really pious or religious or whatever. But really the idea of holiness in Scripture, as I've said before, is really uh, something totally different. It actually comes from a Hebrew word out of the book of Leviticus. It's a word that's the word kadosh. It basically means to be set apart. So holiness in Scripture really is that you have been chosen by God and set apart by Him to be used by Him for His purposes. Now, this is really important, especially for this young group in in Colossae, to understand that God has taken the initiative and he has chosen you and he has set you apart, not as moral perfection, but to be used by him. In other words, your old way of life, your old chasings, your old things, the old pursuits of your selfishness or, or your own desires, he says those things are dead. That you have been set apart by God. Your life has been totally changed. It's been set apart by God for a perfect, holy, and God honoring purpose. I talk to more people that say, Trevor, I am trying to figure out what my purpose in life is, like what I am supposed to do, right? Because our thought process is I'm a kind of a do-driven person, or most of us are, and so we want to find out what that means. What can I do for the Lord? What can I do for work? What can I do? What can I do? But what's really important about these things is that these aren't doing things. They're kind of being things, right? Like God has chosen you and he has set you apart to be used by him, not to go out and do things for him and declare, you know, 2016 is a year I do things for the Lord. Like to be, to understand that I've been set apart by him, not for my own personal selfish way of life in which I once was pursuing, but for now a a way of life that honors the Lord and that is ready to be used by him. You are, are chosen and you are holy, holy. I don't think of myself that way, but if I understand that word, it makes sense. Like God has set me apart because he called me out of this world. And the same thing with you as a follower of Jesus. God has set you apart because he has called you out of this world. And then he says, the third thing I want you to see, he says, and you are dearly loved. I think a lot of us can get on board with those other things, but this one's a really tricky one because we understand that God is love, right? We read 1 John 4, and we understand that God is love, and and we love because God first loved us. We get all that. It's part of his nature, and so because of that, we ascribe this sort of mechanical uh, concept to God's love. Sure, God is love, right? And sure, God loves me, but because it's so commonplace in our spiritual language, I think it misses 
the true depth and reality of what it means to be dearly loved by God. That, that section actually translates better as, you are God's beloved. In other words, that sort of sacrificial movement by which God calls you his dearly loved. I don't, I don't know what love looks like for you. For a lot of us, love is not something we've ever experienced that we're really excited about. Maybe family was broken. Maybe you're out of a broken marriage. Maybe love was a word that was used as a derogatory term. I don't have any idea. But I will tell you this. We, none of us in this room have any understanding of what it truly means to be loved like this phrase means. That you are dearly loved by God in all of your brokenness and sinfulness and all the ways that you have done wrong and all the ways you chose yourself and all the things that you've done and ever will do, God still calls you his dearly beloved. And I, I don't know about you, but I, I don't feel very lovable very often. I see all my glaring mistakes and my giant disastrous kind of life that I've created in my heart and my head and all around me, and I just say, God, I don't get it. But what Paul is saying to this church is he's saying, before you begin to even think about changing anything in your life, you have to understand who you are. Because it changes everything. Jesus changes everything. You are, you are literally chosen by God. You're not a mistake. You're not a mess. God made the movement and drew you to himself, and he calls you his. He has set you apart for a purpose, not for your glory, but for his. And he dearly and deeply loves you. If there was one thing you could grasp this year, I would say, quit trying to do more things and spend your entire year trying to understand what it means to be loved by God. It's, it's a remarkable concept. It's, it's unfathomable or understandable, but it's incredible. You have been dearly loved. So Paul says, listen, I want you to understand those things because those things change everything. And it begins with how it changes our attitude. If we understand that we're that we are chosen and that we are holy or set apart, that we are dearly loved. He says it changes our attitude. He says there, clothe yourselves, right, with compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Now, these aren't things that you can really just go out and physically do, right? You don't go out to the gym and, like, do some kindness or whatever. Like, it doesn't, it doesn't really work that way because these are really things that begin with an attitude of our heart kindness and gentleness and compassion aren't just about doing something. If I walked out there and just did something nice for someone, but I did it because I felt like I should, it doesn't begin in my heart. It's really just a random act of whatever. But compassion and gentleness, right, and kindness are wellsprings of the heart. They are overflows. The action is an overflow of what is happening in my heart. If I'm just nice to you, right, because I should be, it's not really part of my attitude or my character. But what Paul's saying is, look, because you have been chosen, called, and dearly loved, because of those things, your attitude of your heart should be different. It should change. You should literally clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness and gentleness. And I love that picture because think about the idea of clothing yourself, right? It takes effort. It's something that you have to make conscious decisions to do, to put on, to take the effort. And it's things that people can see. So if you're walking down the street, people see what you're wearing, and they can visibly see that on you. And it says a lot about who you are. Now, in our culture, we've taken that to the extreme in terms of clothing and name brands and all this kind of stuff. But, but simplify that for a moment and just think about kind of what I'm getting at, which is what we clothe ourselves with as followers of Christ matters. And what Paul's saying is that what if 
your understanding of who you are changed your attitude. Like, God, in 2016, or right now, beginning now, beginning yesterday, beginning forever, I want to be known as someone that wears compassion and kindness and gentleness. Like, how incredible that'd be, to wear humility. Like, my life is marked by that. Not by the fact I got another of my 30 books under my belt, which are fine, or I read the Bible for the 80th time, or I did whatever, but that people could literally see kindness and compassion on me. Like I was draped in it. I was clothed in it because my attitude reflected it. That picture, right, begins to change how we live. So if our attitude changes about what I want to be known as, I don't really care about being known as a doctor. I don't really care about being known as a, as a mom or as a dad or as a business owner. I don't really care about being known as, you know, this person that accomplished all that or got great grades or whatever. I want to be known by what I clothe myself in. And what I clothe myself in has to do with who God says I am, chosen and set apart and loved. And I want to be known for the compassion and gentleness, and humility, and patience that is draped over me because of Jesus Christ. I could care less what everybody else knows about me as long as they know those truths because they're who God calls me to be. That attitude changes how we live. Listen to how he says it changes how they live. Bear, right, with each other and forgive one another. So you know what to bear means, right? It means to to carry the load, to bear each other's burdens, to walk alongside someone in their moments of struggle. Bearing a burden or a load means that you are willing to shoulder that with someone else. Now, for this young community, it was really important because the burden of being a Christ follower was huge. You could lose your family. You could lose your life. You could lose your well-being. You could lose all the things that were once yours. When you gave your life to Jesus, all those things were now basically in peril at that culture and at that time. Being a believer was not some lone ranger thing by which you could get on the internet and download whatever podcast or whatever celebrity preacher you like the best and just sort of navigate your spiritual life on your own. When you gave your life to Christ in these early contexts, you did it in community. And it's what we're really called to do. And he says, listen, so part of your attitude and who you are should be reflected on how you walk with one another. To bear each other's burdens, like struggles and hurts. Two pieces to that. One, you've got to be willing to be vulnerable with people. And the second thing is you've got to drop your judgment against people. And you carry and walk with each other's burdens. I mean, this is really the picture of what it means to be the community of Christ followers, right? Like we're vulnerable, we drop our judgment, and we just carry each other's hurts and labors and burdens. He goes on to say, forgive one another, right? Forgive one another. We're all really great with the idea of forgiveness, as long as forgiveness fits in my little purview, right? As long as you apologize, right? As long as you say you'll never do it again, and as long as you take the initiative to do those things, then I absolutely, 100% will forgive you. We all are okay with that. But what happens when those things don't happen? Listen to the rest of that. He says, forgive one another, right? Forgive one another. Whatever grievances may have been brought against one another, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It's a bit of a game changer for me because I did nothing to earn God's forgiveness. Not a single thing. In fact, in my moments of greatest sin, right, 
when God forgave me, the only ammunition I gave him to forgive me was to just keep doing worse things. That God forgave me despite any effort of my own. He forgave me when I was unforgivable. He forgave me when I was uh, angry and I was hate-filled. He forgave me in the middle of my ongoing, deep, sinful life. He forgave me. And yet we look at each other and we set these stipulations on forgiveness, right? Yeah, I'll forgive my mom when she finally calls me, but I'm not calling her first. Or I'll forgive so-and-so for doing that, but I'm not going to ever be friends with them again. But really it's not just forgiveness, it's more just kind of ignoring the way that they've hurt you. But the attitude that begins to overflow from knowing that you are chosen and set apart and dearly loved brings about action, forgiveness, bearing burdens. What if you decided this year that you were going to actually forgive people in your life the way that Jesus forgave you? No questions asked, right? No movement needed on their part, no groveling, no crawling to you and begging and asking and apologizing, just you saying, I forgive you, even though you're not sorry, because Jesus forgave me. The last thing Paul says is he says this. He says, and over all those things, all those virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So he says, on top of all that, the humility and the, the kindness and the gentleness and the, the attitude reflection, the lifestyle changes, the bearing burdens, the, the forgiveness, the understanding who you are, all of that, over all of it, put on love because it binds all those things together. Church talks a lot about love, love people, love God. You know, we have a lot of context for love, but most of our understandings of love are so skewed, right? Like our understanding of ourselves is so broken that we apply and misapply definitions to it. But what Paul's basically getting on is getting at is this. It doesn't, doesn't do you any good just to forgive somebody just for the sake of forgiving them. Like, I forgive you, whatever, I'm over it. Or I'll be nice to you and I'll give you a couple of bucks because I know you're struggling right now. Or, or I'll, I'll live with patience and I'll let your sort of little personality things wear me out. But I'm going to be patient with you because the Bible says I should. Right? When you cover these things in love, they actually give, it gives purpose to them. I forgive you, right, because I love you. Because God loved me. I'm compassionate to you, and my heart breaks for you because I love you, because God demonstrated what that looks like to me. I'm patient with you, even when I don't want to be patient with you, even when you get on my ever-loving last nerve, because God is endlessly patient with me. Endlessly patient with me. Because he loves me. And I'm going to dig deep, and I'm going to be patient with you because I love you the way that God loves me. Paul says, love binds those things together. As I think about what I want my life to look like, really, I mean, yeah, I want to do things. Like I want to read a lot of books and I want to get skinnier and I want to travel the world, of course. Nothing wrong with any of that. But what I really desperately want is I want people to see that in my life. I want them to look at me and say, compassion and kindness and someone who understands that they're dearly loved and, they, and he loves people. Oh, how he loves people what I long for. Not even close to any of that, but I long for it. So before I ever decide that I'm going to accomplish a few tasks in my life, I want to try and live into who God has called me to be. 
And I want to end with this, because in verse 17, which we're just going to jump down a little bit, he ties it all together. And Paul says this in 17, he says, And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So he says, listen, whatever you do, right, this attitude, this action, understanding who you are, all those things, whatever you do, whether it's your New Year's resolutions or whether you're trying to live into these truths, whatever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. Two things about doing something in the name of Jesus. The first is this. When you do something in the name of Jesus, you are doing it in their character and name and honor and reflection, right? If you're doing something in someone else's name, you're doing it for their, their kind of way of doing it. You're their representative. So when you do something in the name of Jesus, you are doing it as Jesus would do it. So if I'm going to love in the name of Jesus, I'm going to love the way that Jesus loved, or at least attempt. If I'm going to forgive in the name of Jesus, I'm going to forgive the way that Jesus forgave. If I'm going to walk alongside you bearing your burdens, I'm going to do it the way that Jesus would. Why? Because whatever we do, we do in his name. If I'm going to try and live healthier in 2016, I should do it in the name of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus gets the glory. Period. You do something in someone's name, they do it in their attitude and spirit and heart, and they get the glory. Not you. Not me. 2016 and beyond should not be about the effort and put forward that Treb Prater does, how he does his thing, or what he does, or what, what he does, or what I accomplished. Whatever we do, we do in the name of Jesus, which means God gets the glory for the things in my life, for my accomplishments in school, for my family, for my business. God gets the glory because my life is about doing things in his name. And for a lot of us, our spiritual lives are really delineated out, right? Our church life takes here, our business life is here, our family life is here, our school life is there, and we categorize things out. But what Paul says is he says, whatever you do. You know what the word whatever means there? It means whatever. Like, whatever you do, right? We do in the name of Jesus. School, work, family, life. It doesn't stay in these walls. How you treat people at work matters. The words you use about them behind their back, they matter. How you treat your family, your wife, your children, your husband matters. How you treat your parents matters. How you act in school, how you live your life matters. Why? Because we are called to do things in the name of Jesus. Right? But then he ends with this, and I'll end with this. Do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, to God, right? And do it to Jesus, to God the Father, through him, right? And do it all giving thanks. What if this year was marked by this heartbeat of gratitude? God, even in the hardest things in my life this year, I'm just grateful for you. I'm grateful that you chose me, that you set me apart, and that you called me dearly loved. Like in the small, tiny things, instead of the worries and the anxieties and the fears and the shortcomings and all the ways it didn't go how I planned, God, I'm just thankful. Because that movement, that understanding who God says you are and what he's done, that movement towards gratitude has a profound impact on how we begin to think and live. As we prepare to share communion together, let's take a look at this video as a way of just reminding ourselves what this year could be and should begin with.